welcome to the Gateworld podcast. Welcome, everyone, to episode 109 of the GateWorld podcast. I'm David. I'm Diana, sitting in for Darren. I am so excited to have you this week. Thank you. I'm playing substitute teacher, sort of like Gwyneth Paltrow, but not quite so much for Darren, because Darren couldn't make it today. You're subbing in for him today. and Indeed. Uh, yes. You and I talk all the time, and I, w- I missed the show where, where you subbed for me, so now you're subbing for him, and now you and I get to talk on air, uh, officially, so this is really cool. Fine by me, and I'm very happy to talk to both of you guys, although I have to admit, I do feel a little weird when I don't hear one of your voices when I'm listening to it. Very cool. Well, Malice just aired uh, this past Tuesday on uh, Sci-Fi Channel. Obviously, we uh, have had a chance to uh, watch it, and we're going to be talking about that in the main discussion. But first of all, how are you? How's school? School is wrapping up. My students are all working their little fingers to the bone, finishing their scripts and their schedules and their budgets. How about you? How are things going out there? What's going on with the auctions? The auctions are full steam ahead for uh, for Stargate Live Auction 2. I don't know if I can announce the date yet, so I'm not going to, but it's obviously early to. 2011. We're looking at uh, 450 or so lots for the second auction. And we've just been going through, again, working our fingers to the bone as well with describing all these uh, all these beautiful pieces of Stargate memorabilia, photographing them as well, which is a big, big endeavor, especially when you have large pieces like the uh, star map, the SGC star map from the control room. Uh, the one with, oh. the, with the, the computerized device that slides back and forth and, and, and tracks the wormhole. Things like that are really difficult to photograph and very time-consuming, and I'm part of that entire process. In addition to doing production descriptions and descriptions for the catalog, I have a team who does technical descript- descriptions that breaks that all down. So it's nuts. But the, the added, uh, the additional uh, thing is, uh, you know, the a lot of these lots were chosen last March when we were gearing up to figure out what everything was going to go for in terms of live auction and eBay auctions. And with the results of uh, of last September's uh, first Stargate auction, we have to go through and assess, okay, what's worth selling again uh, in a live auction, what's worth transferring to eBay. So it's a big job. Yeah, I was going to ask you what some of the pieces were that uh, are going to be up for auction, and having that star map is certainly one that's going to be interesting to see wh- who grabs that. What a heck of a thing to put in your living room wall. Well, the star map is ex- immensely large. It is very tall. I think it's I think it's 9 or 10 feet tall and even wider across. I don't want to know what the shipping for that's going to be. That is going to be immensely expensive. And, th- and that's the problem with these with these big pieces, you know. Even if you get them for $15, sometimes you're still going to pay six, $700 shipping. You know, that's uh, I, the Atlantis stained glass. Beautiful pieces, real glass with the, the, the printed uh, stained look on it from, from the gate room of, of, uh, of the control tower, the central spire. You know, you may pay 100 bucks for a piece of stained glass but if you I mean if you if you're over in Europe it's going to cost seven eight hundred dollars to ship that to you so it's a really delicate balance you know the the small stuff generally sells very well weapons sell very well I would think uniforms clothing costumes costumes did not do very well in live one we were really surprised Taylor's hero costume from Rising, that beautiful layered costume that uh, that she wore in the pilot episode went for like two hundred and fifty bucks, and it was just really wow. shocking. 
Whereas, you know, a weapon that was used in one episode of like like Aurora in, in Atlanta season two went for twenty five hundred dollars. So you just never know. So but yeah, at least these props and pieces are getting homes. And I think that, you know, I think that's a wonderful way to ensure that the franchise continues in the hearts and the minds of us nutsy fans as we move further into the 21st century a lot of people have taken issue with you know well they're they're auctioning off all this stuff now that means that there are going to be no movies you know before prop work showed up we we, we took six semi trucks worth of stuff out of there before prop work showed up legends memorabilia took that and probably more in terms of semi trucks worth of stuff out over the years you know that's just how it works things move through through production, they get created and they get used, and then you know they sit around. And at some point, the the set decorator and, and uh, the props people say, you know, this we're not planning on using this anymore. So, please get this out of here, otherwise we're going to have to destroy it. And you know that's where we come in. Well, it'll be fun to see the live auction when it happens again next time. It was a lot of fun last time. It was. We had a live video feed, which I think you mm-hmm. watched some of, and it, it's always fun to see what prices go for, even if you don't plan on bidding. The main discussion. Let's talk about Malice. Oh, Malice. Talk about a visual treat for the eyes. What an amazing episode. Malice is episode 208 uh, of Stargate Universe. This is the eighth episode of the season. We have two more before we go to a break. This is one that I knew nothing about until I allowed myself to watch a few seconds of the teaser uh, the week before when the greater good wrapped. Simeon is loose. I think his plan is to... um, gate off world and then slowly work take a remote and slowly work his way back to the planet where a lot of the lucian alliance were dropped off what say you well i think that was the theory of the others i don't think we ever heard him say that but I think right. the others that were going after him had that theory which begs to question why didn't they just like lay out some you know c4 that would blow up after they got off the they gated back to the ship but Mm. I understand that Rush needed to have his moment. And I think it was it was established in um I th- I think it was Aftermath was was or was I think it was Aftermath where we uh, uncovered the bridge is that the episode where Riley died? Um yes, after I do believe Aftermath is was when he Aftermath? died. Yeah, yep. they used C4 the to blow up cover. rock away from a gate and it didn't blow up the gate. So I mean, this is kind of like a technical thing, but I I don't know if C4 would have blown up a gate. But anyway, yeah, you're you're definitely right. They didn't um they didn't leave any explosives on the planet and then take off and then have it blow up. So they, they really wanted to get it. And and the other point is, you know, we have now uncovered in this episode that uh, Simeon has or had information leading to a uh, an attack on Earth. So it was important for us to uh, to get him back. And obviously, if you've seen the episode, I apologize if you haven't, but they don't really do that. <laughs> Well, what's interesting is how they're building that up every single episode, the imminent attack on Earth. Yeah. Um, my, and we certainly had a bit more jeopardy with that in this episode in regards to why they were trying to take this man alive and not kill him. And that was a through line that kept going throughout the episode and kept driving it forward. Well, I was going to say that I, what I found interesting was, um, you know, to, to go back to the beginning of the episode, is that you had Jin on Earth allegedly, you know, giving them information about the Lucian Alliance's plans, and this woman was being put in the body of a, of a quadriplegic. quadriplegic. 
Yeah. You know, and uh, I mean, I understand it's television and we only have our 42 minutes that we can show things in, but I would have been, it would have been interesting to have seen how she was suffering under those circumstances to give that information. I mean, that's almost like torture. I was hoping that we were going to, um, to go to Earth and, and see Homeworld, uh, Homeworld Command. The problem is the the Homeworld Command sets don't exist anymore. I mean, they were they were uh, redesigned from uh, from SGC, and those sets are gone. Uh, that doesn't mean that they couldn't rebuild them, but you'll notice that we haven't seen any of Homeworld Command this year. Uh, I was really hoping that we were going to see some of that on Earth, see how she was dealing with that situation in that woman's body. And also, you know, I mean, I was hoping to hear firsthand, you know, some of the things that she was talking about. I mean, she couldn't have taken hours upon hours and hours to say, oh, Simeon knows of an attack on Earth. She had to have been telling them other stuff, and that's something that I hope is going to come about uh, maybe in the next episodes uh, to come, of what else it was that she was saying on Earth. Because there has to be right. something in there. So the stones definitely basically can kill in the sense that if one is dead, they're both dead. That's been made very clear to us in this episode. Yeah, if you die... Uh, if you're on on in the body of someone who's dying, your consciousness doesn't automatically revert back to your body. You're stuck. That was something that wasn't confirmed in um, the incident part one. That was something that was just speculated because Rush goes down and he starts, you know, he starts having problems at the same time that Telford is is dying. But and and TJ raises that point. We don't know for sure what happens, and we do now, and that's kind of scary. It's quite scary. It's also, quite frankly, I mean, I really like these two women secondary characters or guest characters that had come on board. So I, it was, it was a pity to see them go. Yeah, let's get that out was. there. You were you were bringing that up earlier this yeah. week, and I didn't think that you would have had the chance to share. And now, now you can share. You know, this was. You, I completely agree with you. You have a couple of strong female actors uh, whom they've brought into the show, and in one moment, they're both offed. In the yep. episode. That's bold. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's bold in the sense that it makes it very clear that at any minute you, your life could be snuffed right out. And I think we need that reminder. Yeah. And in fact, I would say that this last batch of episodes has done a terrific job with that reminder, much, much more so than the earlier episodes. Yeah. Uh, there's much more at stake now. We've lost Riley. We've lost Jin. We've lost uh, Amanda Perry. And uh, it does uh, make security things guard. more care. Yeah. We've lost, we've lost quite a few. Yes, we've lost quite a few people at this point. It definitely heightens the stakes, and you need to be doing that on many, many levels at once. And that certainly, with the two things we just discussed, with the potential threat to Earth, yeah. and now the fact that anytime you're you're talking on these stones, your life could be snuffed out. You can watch a lot of television and. And there was certainly some of Stargate where I watched, and and someone would point a gun at someone else. I'm like, oh, they're not going to kill him. They're, he's not going to die. If, they, if 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 he dies, the show's over. When Simeon came through that mist and pointed his gun at Park, I sat up, thinking, "Oh my gosh, Lisa Park might actually die," you yep. know. And and Volker definitely has that reaction, like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa!" You know, <laughs> it was happening so fast. And then, of course, she goes through the gate as his hostage and has a bomb planted on her back. And I seriously considered for a few seconds there, whoa, what if Lisa Park dies? What if that scientist dies? There are several scientists in the show. 
I mean, let's let's face facts. They are potentially expendable characters because uh, they all perform, you know, a similar kind of function. Uh, whereas, you know, Rodney was Rodney. If you killed him, you know, you would have to introduce a new character to carry on some exposition. And, you know, it there the sense of jeopardy is very, very palpable in this show. And it gets your heart pumping. Yeah, I like that Hurt Locker moment with Park yes. with the bomb on her back. That was... Uh... That was really good. I mean, in fact, speaking of secondary characters, I don't know if I agree with you anymore after this episode. This episode really, <laughs> Park, Smokemer, and Brody, their characters became more distinct. In fact, yes. I would say that was one of the purposes of this episode was to have each character really start an arc beyond yeah. being on this ship that's, you know, going towards... Some other Something. part of the universe. Yeah. The fact that, I mean, you saw what Brody was going through watching Eli. Brody was going through a lot watching Eli and everybody else suffer, and it was making him very uncomfortable. Volkmer was really upset yeah. over what he, he feels. He feels he failed. Yeah. I mean, you could see that in his face, and I mean... Patrick Gilmore did a great job with the, the little role he yeah. had. And then Lisa Parks just... I felt so badly for her when she was kneeling in that desert with that bomb on her back. Mm -hmm. the, so I the, think these characters have really, mm -hmm. they've got launching pads now. They've launched off. Gilmore did a great job. You know, you you look at that character, and, and even though Park survived, it's almost like he's still going through some kind of survivor guilt because he wasn't the one chosen, and Brody has to... Like explain to him, you know, this is this is war. You know, both granted, both of you were unarmed, you know, but uh, this guy is, is is a dirty fighter, and he may have wanted you to live with certain things, uh, which uh, Simeon reinforces with Rush later on. I wanted you to live with this, Lisa. Right when when she had that device on her back, you know, she's telling Rush, "It's okay, it's okay." And she's making peace with herself now. She's she's being she's she's getting herself ready to meet her maker or go into the next phase of whatever existence she believes in, and it's like, oh my. Gosh, she might go. Just really, really incredible. Great acting all around and beautiful cinematography to look at. I mean, I had a lot of fun just watching the thing. It was like watching a mini film. It did, really. You know, this was an extraordinary visual. When they said they were going back to New Mexico, I, I was expecting, you know, a, another desert, very flat, you know, wide open spaces. And watching this episode, it felt to me like this is someplace that they had scouted last season and said, you know what, let's keep this in our back pocket. Let's mm -hmm. let's let's remember that this is here and we may want to come back here. I really got that feeling from this episode. Maybe maybe not, but what an astounding Vista, and the thing that I always notice is when when they do spend some money and and uh, get the characters, uh, the the actors, and and pay for a, a, a couple of semi trucks to come across the border with the gate and and with all their costumes, you know, it it seems to me that they really milk the vistas. They have a lot of wide shots. They have a lot of traveling shots. In the Ark of Truth, there was a ton of teal traveling across the mountains, and it kind of goes on a little bit too long. But the vistas were just incredible. Well, same thing with Continuum when they went up and yes, shot the at the North yes, Pole. Yes, exactly. Yep, absolutely. But you know what? I'm fine with that. I mean, that's the whole point of why do we watch television? Why do we read books? Why do we watch movies? It's to experience things that from our, our chair or from wherever that we can't 
normally experience. We're going along for the ride, so by all means, show me a new place, and they yeah. did. Yeah. But I will say, as far as showing things, Robert Cooper has definitely created a style now. If I was to watch anything from here on in, I would be able to nail if it was a Robert Cooper-directed episode, just based off of this and Vegas and a couple of the other SGUs that he's done now. He, he has a definitive style. And it really came through in this episode. There were some similarities, in fact, to Vegas, I thought. Mm -hmm. uh, he really is very fond of the slow-mo ramp up to full speed. Yes. And he loves swish pans. He loves to ride the camera low, you know, where it's low below the actors. And it does give a sense of uh, foreboding. Mm -hmm. to the scene um, mm -hmm. and that's definitely his trait so it's going to be very interesting to watch Robert Cooper's career from here on in if he pursues directing and I hope he does I hope he continues to come back and direct uh, uh, more uh, episodes of Universe if Universe is greenlit for a season 3 because he's just become one of my favorite directors he he um he has told me you know that this is one of the things that he has wanted to do for a long time and he and i talked about that a little uh earlier this year where you know i mean you're you're the executive producer and creator of this creator of this show to a large extent you know if you want to direct whether you're good or bad at it you can do it and who's going to stop you you know and what's what's fantastic is he's really good at it <laughs> yeah well it's traditional in science fiction as a, a series goes on that a lot of the behind-the-camera folks get to play at being a director. A lot of actors do. Deep Space Nine, Avery Brooks directed like seven or nine episodes. Some yeah. of the best ones, in fact. Jonathan uh, Frakes talks about opening up the, yeah. the door in Star Trek for for the, the actors to go, I think, they, like, like Paramount College, Paramount University, I think that's what they called it, where you know the actors were often given a chance to direct, and a number of them took that opportunity. And now you've got Robert McNeil, Ross at Roxanne Dawson, LeVar Burton. Yep. You watch all these other shows, and their names pop up again and again. You, you were mentioning Ming Na. Yeah, I, I mean, Robert Carlyle has directed an episode now this season, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, who knows? He might direct an episode next season. It's interesting. It's very interesting. And quite frankly, nobody knows the show as well as they do. For people who don't understand how a television series is produced, to a certain extent, it's self-directed because the only continuity on a set are the actors, the, cinema, the cinematographer, otherwise known as the director of photography, and the crew. Directors come and go. Yeah. So oftentimes the director can do a lot as far as what they're going to do with the props and what they're going to do with camera. But when it comes to working with the actors, it's not a case of, okay, you, actor, stand over there and do it this way. There's much more of a partnership between the director and the actor in television than there often is in film. Yeah, It's exactly. a much more of a collaborative atmosphere, and it's the same way also with writers. I mean, TV in general tends to be much more of a collaborative contribution than film is. Film is much more of a hierarchy. So, you know, you get good results out of that. And film is very um, temporary. I mean, you do have, like, I mean, your teams that you work with. I mean, you know, like like um, like Gail Ann Hurd, you know, she'll have her team. Or M. Night Shyamalan, he'll have his team. But with, with television, you know, there's a real continuity. The actors are always there. The, the writers, to a large extent, are always there. You know, the crew that is that is on that stage is, is generally there from day to day. And, and they know how the show works. And if the director should definitely be encouraged to bring his own style to an episode if he has never been there before. But at the same time, I think you're pretty, you're pretty stupid if you don't at least listen to what people have to say. 
Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And of course, there's always one of the writer producers on set as well. Yeah. To ensure continuity as well. Because, you know, film is like short stories. Television is like a long novel. Yeah. And it needs to stay consistent from chapter to chapter or episode to episode in the case of television. So back on Malice, let's talk about Eli, if we could, for a little bit, because I, talk about a subplot. Oh, I know. I, I would first like to go back to this Rush returning to Gin's quarters. Uh, Mandy okay. does not open up. He opens the door, and Gin is dead on the on the floor. And I, I think we're supposed to believe that her neck was broken. Is that what was... Uh, That's that, what I bought, that her neck was broken, she was strangled... I mean, he was a Simeon's a big yeah. guy, and, and yeah. Jim was a you know a little girl yeah. in comparison. So it's easy to see how he overpowered her. But don't you think that you, don't you find that interesting? A quadriplegic who was in her body, if if she had her neck broken, I thought that that was an interesting uh, an interesting choice. I hadn't um, even thought of that. That's very profound. You're right. That is it is a very interesting choice because you know disturbing. Disabled. Yeah, it is, you know, and he, I don't think he would have known, but, um, yeah. Uh, so you're right. Eli has a great, um, a great arc in this episode. This is someone that he and, and we, the audience, are getting close to. And as soon as he finds out that Gen is dead and that, uh, that Simeon is loose, his, his escort is, is missing. That, that great line, Colonel, can I have a gun? And the, uh the the shaking in his voice and this is this is not something that he's used to but he is so enraged and, and I'm sure frustrated that uh that he wants to get into the fight and he's not thinking with a full deck you know he's like give me a gun I I must contribute to this you know I know I'm normally on the bridge but in this case this is personal well gin was the first little bit of light that he's had in his life since this whole adventure started. His mother is struggling with AIDS back on Earth. The girl that he fell hard for, yeah. he can't have. Yeah, um, they're friends, very but out still. Of place. Right, yeah. but he's very out of place. He's feeling very, in some ways, even more isolated than everybody else. And he's really caught in the middle between the military and the civilians because he does more objectively see all sides. So it's been Everyone very tough is using for him. him. Yeah. That's right. Everyone's so here was a gal who I mean, you know, let's be frank here. They had uh <clears throat> they had time in the bedroom together they as did. it was established to us <laughs> for us in the last episode. I love the t-shirt. You are here. I want one of those. <laughs> awesome t-shirts. It's just the funniest joke. I mean, it was so funny how that T-shirt was lying on the chair in the past episode when, when Camille has the doors open and says, <laughs> you are here. Um, so, I mean, yeah, okay, yes, this happened very fast, but I can, uh, you know, everything is going to be extreme. Emotions are going to be very raw when you're in that sort of circumstances, and that is something you have to take into account as to why Eli is reacting so strongly to somebody he's only really had any kind of connection with for a couple of weeks. A couple of weeks on the Destiny is like the comparison of six months to a year for us in the sense of how every minute matters. Mm -hmm. You're so, in the trenches, you know, you're, you're living totally, day by day. That's right. That's right. And you also, take so you know, much youth, for granted. Yes. And youth also does tend to jump emotionally, both eyes shut into emotional situations faster too and that's something to remember as well and Eli is young 
I mean, mm-hmm. is it established on the show how what his age is? Eli was born in 1984, for uh, those who are interested in knowing. So he's, uh, he's 26, 27 now. So, I mean, 26, 27, you're still jumping into relationships. You are definitely jumping into relationships fast. Yeah. So you have to k- take that into account as well. So, you know, I think it, 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 what he went through in this episode as far as his anger and his frustration and his sense of wanting to do something. What a terrific parallel to Rush's storyline. You know, no one controls Rush. No one tells Rush what to do. You know, this is this is someone I mean the the, the second love of his life is now dead. And I love the the reaction of of Rush storming through the uh, storming through the corridors and just screaming. You know, this is that Carlisle is just fantastic. You know, you you get you get how hurt he is. You get how how uh, angry he is, and that I, that's a great scene where he just picks up a pistol and he walks through that gate, and and folks just like, well, where where are you going? You know? Oh yeah, there's a very much a high noon Western Sergio Leone feel to this episode, and I think that was deliberate on the part of Robert Cooper. Uh, this whole you know vengeance and. Uh, Meeting, meeting them in the desert and high yeah, sun and all exactly. that. There's definitely that feel to it. But Rush, to his, I think Rush blames himself also for what happened. Oh, yeah, he um, totally does. He's he, sitting there on that he, rock, and he's, he's not blaming anyone else. He's saying, I brought her on board. He brought right. her on board because he wanted his secret to be kept. He failed, and at the same time, he lost a woman that he loved. That's right. So he killed Riley, yep. as is discussed in the opening, yes. ep- opening scene. Um, he's responsible for Riley's death inadvertently, and then he is inadvertently responsible for Amanda Perry's death because of his need for secrecy. Mm-hmm. You know, in the previous episode, he says we have to work together to Colonel Young, but I don't know if he meant it or not. Now, I'd like to see if he really learned his lesson because two people lost their lives. Well, three people lost their lives, uh, but two direct, directly because of his need for secrecy. But going back to the parallels between Eli and Rush, you know, Rush goes and does what he wants. Eli, you have Colonel Young is able to connect with him. What did you think of that scene? That is a great, great moment. You've got Eli basically on his way out there. I don't care what you say. You know, I I respect you, this and that, you know, but you are, you're not going to stop me. And I think it's interesting. He asks him, are you going to let me have a gun? You know, he doesn't say, I'm going to take this gun and I'm going to go. And Young is saying he's he's trying to tell Eli who he is. He's trying to tell him that I don't think that this is in you. I don't think you can you can kill this person. And even if you did, it's going to change you. Yes, they're going to be dead, but you are never going to be the same. You are a I mean, you're, he's not going to be, you know, the quarterback. He's not going to be the prom king. He is going. He is. He is the, the 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 genius, and his place is on the bridge, and yep. that's where he needs to be to solve problems. That's that's what his mission is. That's what his job is. And Young is telling him, you know, you've got to get back up there. This is that's the the best place that you're going to be effective. And he um, he later is effective in turning destiny around. Yeah, how do you like that? Two weeks in a row where Eli is in the command chair. 
<laughs> I thought I thought that was very interesting because it's so not what we would expect. Yet Young has not sat in that chair yet. If you'll notice, he, he hasn't has avoided that chair. But Young, you know, it's interesting because the way that they they write the show is that Scott sees Young as a paternal influence. But my watching the show, I see Young being more of a paternal influence with Eli over the yeah. course of a season and a half than well, I do with Scott. Both of these men have daddy issues, and I, I think that that has come through uh, in the characters' uh, r- relationships with Colonel Young. You know, he's—I think he's certainly dealing with that. Yeah, and I don't think you're going to see Young in that chair anytime soon. A, the chair is filled with buttons that you have to know how to operate, and I don't—I'm not sure how much ancient Young really knows. We'll see. We'll see, though. That—that'll be a poignant moment, though, if he does decide to sit down. Definitely. So they go to this uh, beautiful um, New Mexico world which is full of these uh, really, really cool dinosaur-looking creatures, to hunt Simeon down. They are now... uh, 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 James has returned from Earth uh, from Homeworld Command with information that uh, Simeon may have information about this attack on Earth that is being planned that we've been been hearing about for several episodes now. And James is on this planet, you know, providing providing cover. This uh, they're they're covering the Stargate just in case uh, just in case Simeon comes back, and everyone's out trying to capture him. Scott and Greer eventually catch up to to Rush to let him know that of uh, the information that that James has brought back, and it is up to us to capture him now. He hasn't provided us inform now that we know that he has uh, this information about Earth. I think it's a a pretty decent uh, guess that he will not give us the information that we want, and if he does, it's not going to be reliable. But uh, we have to uh, to bring him back anyway. And I love what uh, happens with with Scott. I love when uh, one of my I think my favorite scene in this episode is when you know it's that long walk with Rush, with Greer, and with Scott, and there's this quiet, and then Young starts to sob. And he breaks down. I love this mm-hmm. scene. Yep. That he felt that, I mean, the fact that Rush felt comfortable enough to do that in front of Scott, I think is very interesting. Yeah. yeah. And I think there's a lot of potential for that dynamic in future episodes. And I'll be curious to see where it goes. Be very curious. There's something there. It's like they're more equals than Rush. Rush and Young are always vying with each other. But there's like this unsettled sense of equality between Scott and Rush. And I, Rush just seems to afford Scott a level of respect I've never seen him give to Young. So, yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see yeah. where that goes. Yeah. I, and in that scene, leading up to the scene, you know, uh, Scott has repeated, we have orders. We have to bring this guy in. I think this is a very interesting moment where where Scott says, I'm trying to remember exactly what it was, but, you know, some things are more important or, you know, life is more life is more complicated. And I think I think Rush says, congratulations, you're you're figuring this out. And it's interesting because this is a I think this is about the time when when Greer gets shot. Or, or just about around there, but it seems to me like Scott was willing to let Rush go, and and hunt Simeon down and kill him. Did you get that impression? Like he was he was going he was going to let uh, let Rush take out Simeon, or was he still? Well, uh, no, I agree because I mean, once Greer got shot, yeah, uh, and, and, and once Greer got shot and Rush went off, Scott didn't even say stop. Yeah, he didn't say anything. Yeah, you know, he, well, just he was yelling his name. Yeah, 
he yelled his name, but he didn't say, stop, you can't do that. Yeah. So he just, he stayed with Greer, which is what he should do. Yeah. And, you know, and took care of Greer. And boy, did uh, Greer do a great job of getting shot. <laughs> yes, that guy fell, and he sounded like he was really hurt. <laughs> it hurt just watching him. I mean, it yes. really, I mean, he really made you buy it. Yes. He really made you buy it. It was a, Jimmy Little Walker did a great job with that little bit there, and I'm glad he got to do that. Um, but, yeah, I do think that Scott let yeah. Rush go. And I have to admit that at the end, I think Rush is right, that you never were going to get anything out of Simeon. Mm -mm, mm -mm. The only thing you could do is put a bad animal down. Yeah. Uh, Mike Dopud's character, Varro talks about that. He says, you're better off letting him go. You know, you're going to you're going to get more loss of life trying to retrieve him. Uh, you're, you're just better off letting the man go. And I just, I just love that moment where, 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 uh, where Greer says, I thought you said it wasn't that bad. And, and Scott says, yeah, I lied. <laughs> we need to get you back to the gate. Hello, guys. This is John from Greece. I want to say something about Russ in the last episode, Malice. Although Russ's morality was always dubious, this is the first time we see Russ break his own morality. Russ is always saying that Young can't make the hard decisions for the greater good. But in this episode, it's Russ who let his emotions cloud his logical thinking and risk the life of everyone on Earth as a result. Young is the one who stayed calm, gave the order to capture Simeon alive, and talked reason into Eli. As someone who loves both characters, I enjoyed this little reversal of roles. I believe this is also the first time we see Russ putting anything be- before Destiny's mission. Another thing I want to say is, Last week, you and some listeners talked about going to the center of the universe, where the Big Bang happened. Well, according to the theory, when the Big Bang happened, it didn't just create the universe, but the moments that followed, it was the whole universe, which then expanded rapidly and kept expanding, until it became the universe we see today. Therefore, the Big Bang didn't happen somewhere, it happened everywhere, which is why the cosmic background radiation is coming from everywhere. That's all, guys. Thank you very much for your great show. John called in, and he uh, he made an interesting point. He said, uh, this is the first time that we've seen Rush break his own morality. Uh, Rush lets emotions cloud his judgment, and he has always accused Young of, uh, of doing this. Uh, he also makes a point about the center of the universe, which we can talk about in a little bit. But he's right. I think, I think John makes a, a fair point. Rush has always talked about uh, Young letting emotions get in the way of his judgment. And now Rush has done this. I think that it was inevitable that this would happen. I mean, there's just so long that you can be Machiavellian about the long view, long view being to complete Destiny's mission, which he has sustained in some ways by himself for a year yeah. and a half. So I think it was inevitable there is a breaking point, and I think that it was only a matter of time for the right thing to happen to make that happen. So I bought it. I didn't have any trouble with it. I mean... But frankly, at the end of the day, I think that Rush is emotional about this whole Destiny mission because I still think that this is all about him trying to get his wife back. He says at the end of the episode when he reveals to Young what's going on with the ship that they can change things. And I think he has something very specifically in mind he wants to change. So he's had a very singular focus on one particular emotion. And yeah, now he got distracted. Yeah, I think it was... I, I didn't really think about that point until John mentioned it. That where you know Rush was always was always saying that uh, you know Young was was letting his emotion cloud his judgment, and and this is certainly a time where I I think any of us in this position you know if if someone we love has fallen, and we're that 
wild in personality. I, I can I can see someone going off and and uh, and hunting them down. I, I certainly know that if if someone were to to harm me, my father would do the same, and the law be damned. So I, I can see where that's I can see where that's definitely you know that's definitely very true to that character. I can I could see him doing that. But yeah, it's an interesting point. What do you think? You you spent a lot of time in the industry with visual effects. I really mm-hmm. want your opinion on this this amazing scene, which uh, nothing like it we've ever seen in Stargate Universe before. We have a stampede, and there's there's so much uh, Western filmmaking threaded uh, through this episode in terms of you know what's going on with the plot, uh, the, the the alien vista itself, but but also like things like a stampede. What? How did you think yeah. that? Uh, that uh, sequence was achieved. I thought the concept was brilliant, and I have to admit, I laughed out loud for Rush when yeah. I figured out what he was doing. I was like, "Oh, that's great! That's great!" And I cheered. I mean, that was the first time I've ever really cheered him on in a year and a half. That just dawned <laughs> on me. So, I mean, I thought conceptually the thing was brilliant. You know, I, I I don't know what their budget is. I don't. I know that they don't have a lot of time to do these shots. I, I felt that the, the shots where the dinosaurs were further in the distance were better. Um, yeah. I, 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 I'm trying to be very nice and say basically that they weren't great. Um, and they did. I had to really push hard to keep my suspension of disbelief going. But fortunately, I was so caught up in the plot at that point, I didn't care. Yeah. Yeah, this is the first time that they've done really anything like this, I think. And you know, you have that crane shot where, where it's the, the crane is descending, you know, and the dinosaurs are are coming. And then, you know, we we go back and forth. A lot of it is sound. You know, I think sound is very important in this sequence as well. You know, how you have you have them them uh, roaring or bleeding or whatever it is that they do, and you and the sound of of the rocks being kicked up in their hooves and you know hitting Simeon. A couple of them hit him. That was a complicated sequence to do. And I commend them for it. That was that was an amazing little sequence. But at the ambitious. same time, yes, it was. You know, for a for a television budget, that was really cool. I think I think it's about two million an episode. But at the same time, there was just something about it about about the visual effects and the the, the I don't know if it was the cutting of it back and forth mixed in with the visual effects and the sound. But it was there was something that didn't completely sell me. But at the same well, time, look first at, time they've ever done it. If you look at the blue, so. if you look at the blue aliens, and you look at the pod aliens, oh yeah, oh, they're yeah. so fully realized and three dimensional, and their shadow passes—that's what they call it in the industry—extra shadows that are put in as far as tying them to the floor and the things around them, and as far as even just how uh, shadow across their face or their arms or whatnot. It sells it and to it, us subconsciously. Absolutely. I mean, it's the same thing. Quite frankly, I, I mean, I started out in the industry doing cell animation. I did Inspector Gadget and Heathcliff and a bunch of things like that, and I learned very quickly that it really is about the shadow pass that you put in animation to make you believe that that character is really standing on that background. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing with these dinosaurs. And they really, the textures were very flat. There was not enough dimensionality to them. I think we would have been better suited if we never got that close to them. I think mm-hmm. when, when you looked at them in the distance, it reminded me of the Ritu in uh, season yeah. three of, Star- yeah. of Stargate SG-1. Um, Show and tell. Oh, Show and tell. Thank that, you. Yeah, in the season distance, two. That's season two. In, this, in the distance, you buy it. You know, it's on a long shot. You're using a long lens or a wide lens, but it's distant, and you buy it. 
when they get right up close and we see them going by, not so much. And even the shot when Russia's hiding behind the rock and they yeah. run by, yeah. they're too flat. It's like the roadrunner running by Nicholas Rush. <laughs> Yeah. Oh man! And but I mean, at that point, I was this. I mean, th and this is kudos to Robert Cooper again, who wrote and directed this. I was so caught up in the story at that mm -hmm. point that you know I gave him a pass on that. These are two million dollar episodes. These are not. This is not Jurassic Park. Yeah, yeah, you know? absolutely. They don't have that budget or that time. So I bought it because I was so caught up in the story, and I laughed. Yeah, I mean, exactly. as, as things went by, and I didn't laugh at them. I was laughing at Rush's brilliance. Yeah. <laughs> His when, brilliance setting that bomb. That was genius. Well, that's another thing about that I was that I was carrying your point over. You're in my point over last week about show, showing rather than telling. He could have said, you know, I'm going to I'm going to take the C4 and I'm going to go to the other end and I'm going to cause a stampede. But we see him with the C4. Then we see him with the, we see the monsters off in the distance, and at least in my brain, I looked at that and I said, "Oh my gosh, stampede!" So I'm yep. laughing yep. At, at that, and then it's carried out. And even if the visual effects didn't sell it to me a hundred percent, I was ecstatic that they did it because it was fun and it was funny. That's right. That's that's right, young Skywalker. That's what <laughs> they call entertainment. Exactly <laughs> because it was shown to you, not told to you. You didn't. You didn't go back to Scott and Greer, hear a kaboom, and then have Rush come up and go, well, I killed him. I had some dinosaurs run through. You didn't, yeah. It didn't, didn't get told to you. So, yeah. you know, you could be forgiven. Listen, Sanctuary, which is done for like 60 70% less an episode, has had some CGI that's been even rougher. I mean, this yeah. last episode with the werewolves was pretty rough, but it was a great script. So yeah. you let it go. This is television. Yeah. You know, this is not film where you get 100, 150, 200 plus million hello avatar. You don't get that kind of money or time to do a film or to no. do a television episode. No. So as long as the story carries me along and the directors and the actors help to do that, bring it on. Yeah. I'm fine with it. I really wish they would have saved a little bit of money, though, for when they approached Simeon, because I think he should have been in pieces. I think he should have had an arm here, a leg there. But, I mean, he still had to be alive. So I, I can still forgive that at the same time. But I really think that he should have been messed up, for want of a better word. Um, well, right maybe there. a little more. But you wanted him to try to bribe Rush one last yeah. time. You wanted yeah. that dramatic beat. And isn't and that a great moment? Good... Oh, yeah. <laughs> I have information. Uh, I don't care. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> Bang, your information's worthless. Oh, man. Yes. So, yes, it was a good episode. You know, the one thing we have not talked about yet that we probably should is Chloe on the bridge. Yes, yes. And this this goes Thoughts? this feeds into um, why Rush can take his time getting back with all those long shots. Uh, <laughs> Chloe is is doing some computations in her quarters. We learn that uh, we, we know that Rush gave her some pieces of information, some some uh, incomplete equations that he's been trying to trying to resolve. And he said that, you know, they're they're all various uh, things that we need to figure out. And I think one of them was the ability to turn destiny around. We were you know, we're going into this episode saying you know, don't let her anywhere near anything because who knows what she's going to do. She may send out a homing signal. She may send them Destiny's 
to, to borrow from Star Trek, their uh, uh, shield modulation frequency. I mean, who knows what would happen if you get her anywhere near the controls. And she's standing, she's sitting there at the controls, and all of a sudden she just starts typing. And which is a great, which I think is a great moment because, you know, she's she's expertly typing and we don't see Chloe doing things like this with with ancient technology. Eli breaks her away and she's jarred. It's it's like she's been in a trance. So my first thought was, uh oh, she doesn't know what she's doing. She thinks that she's understanding it, but she's really not. Yeah, I uh, I think I, I I had some problems with suspension of disbelief with the scene. I'll be honest. Really, and I think it's well. I think it's because she was allowed to go on a little too long typing. I think if she had just typed a couple of things and they pulled her away, they weren't watching her. Eli was turned away. Well, they were they were all standing right around her when she did it. Mm-hmm. So I, I had a little bit of a problem with that. Although I'm very fascinated with the long term situation with her character i'm really curious to see where it goes and i'm really starting to wonder about these blue aliens that Mm. they may not be bad guys they may have done this purely so they could communicate with us by having her be some sort of emissary she has she has asked to help and young has allowed her to stay on the bridge so my thing was are they not going to let her help i mean isn't the idea for her being there for her to get a whiff of inspiration and start typing something in because in the end, I, I think we learn that uh, thanks to uh, thanks to what she did, she turned the ship around, if I understand that correctly. Or was it Eli that did that? Well, you see, I'm a little confused about that because Amanda Perry in the previous episode was able to turn the ship around. Well, she was able to turn the ship and, and, and fly it, but not in hyperspace. Not, not in FTL. So she wasn't able to control it in FTL. Right. Not hyperspace, but exactly. FTL. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, that's a good point, and there is a difference with that, being able to control that mode. So, yeah, I mean, it was a significant contribution, and let's see what happens next with her. They're going to have to be careful, but the only way they're going to find out what's going on with her is allowing Mm -hmm. her to do things. So Mm -hmm. what do you do? I mean, if you're Colonel Young or Rush, where do you take chances with Chloe, and where don't you? They have established certain rules in the show. Now that we have... um attained uh, control of a, a lot of uh, elements of the ship and how it flies. Uh, they have established certain rules so that the storytelling isn't uh, – so that they're not just a ship flying around uh, anymore uh, wherever they want to go. And one of those rules is that at, uh, in order to keep the engines from burning out, once the ship engages faster than light travel, it must stay in faster than light travel for at least four hours to keep the engines healthy. Additionally, we have not solved the problem of the the countdown clock. When we come out of uh, FTL, for whatever reason, Destiny decides to set a certain amount of time for the countdown clock, and we have no control over that right now. And Eli has said in the episode, I can go in and fiddle with the program, you know, but even if I even if I figure out how to, there may be unforeseen consequences down the line. And when we get back to Scott on the planet, I think that this is where his uh, his comment comes from. And I was wanting to run this by you. He says, yeah, they figured out how to turn the ship around, which is the first time, as far as we know, in the entire time the Destiny has been flying out in the universe. So that's a big moment that it's that it's that's doubled back and and uh, and done this. But he says, you know, there could be unforeseen consequences in the future. Was Scott speaking of? The the change that that Chloe made specifically to do this, to turn the ship around, or was he talking about maybe Chloe also typed something else into the computer that we don't know about yet? Or both. It could have meant both. It certainly could have had multiple meanings, and I think 
I think that more likely that's what the case was. You know, it's a it's a hanging chad, to use a pop oh, culture term. Boy. It's a hanging chad that they can come <laughs> can go back and use. I mean, listen, Stargate throughout its franchise, okay, at Brad Wright, Jonathan Glasner, Robert Cooper, one of the greatest things about this franchise is that it doesn't drop things episode to episode. Stuff comes back. Threads yeah. are made. Yeah. So Another thread was made, or several threads were made in this episode that are woven into the tapestry of this franchise, and they could go back and use them anytime they want. By and large, what did you think of this show? Um, I would say they're on a roll. This isn't my favorite, but I would say the last four episodes have just been wonderful, entertaining, some of the best science fiction I've seen in over a year quite frankly. I, I really do like to have good science fiction to watch. So, And I have to do a sidebar note just to give an example of h- how much I enjoy the show right now. I can't watch it at night anymore when I get home. Mm-hmm. Um, I On Tuesday nights, on the night it airs, I teach uh, screenwriting and television writing, in fact, until 10. I'm not home really until 11.30 midnight. And I made the mistake three or four weeks ago of watching, the, watching it then on my DVR and I was up till four in the morning thinking about it. If I'm thinking about a show after I've finished watching the episode, it's a good show. And yeah. that's what's going on, I think, I, I feel, with the show this season is that it's making us speculate. That's what good science fiction is about. There are shows out there that you simply watch, that a lot of people simply watch, to, to, to enjoy, have a good laugh, and then turn off. My, my mother calls them junk shows. Glee is a good example of that. Though, you know, with... I have often, uh, in episodes this season, I've often thought about uh, the episode after it's aired. The episode before this, uh, this past one that's just, uh, that just had never, never been kissed. I spent a lot of time thinking about that one because of how good it was, in my opinion. But there are television shows like SGU that, I mean, for a lot of us, you can't help but dwell on them afterwards. And that's one of the wonderful things about having it on, on Friday night. You get to sleep in Saturday and you can, you can spend time digesting it. You can watch it again if you want to, you know, that's, and I think that's a disadvantage of, of Tuesdays. And one of the reasons that I hope the back half is moved uh, to another night, uh, especially compounded with ratings. Oh, absolutely. But, you know, I mean, we've had this conversation about ratings, that ratings are just, it's an outdated thing. Personally, I feel ratings are advertising agencies lying to their clients and the networks are lying to the advertising agencies. I mean, I've I've been looking at several studies on this. Mm -hmm. We are right now, we are at, according to the Nielsen's, we are at 40% of households in the United States have DVRs. I wouldn't have thought it was that high. I maybe would have thought around maybe 25 or 30. Maybe. Well, and I will tell you, I bet out of that 40% that it's a very high number are science fiction aficionados. I do not think that these live ratings properly reflect science fiction aficionados. I've seen this with too many shows now. I mean, I have, I I know that uh, either work at the university, fellow faculty or students or uh, administrative staff there, I know about 20, 23 different people that watch the show, that I chatter with every week about the show. Not one of us watches it live. We can't. Yeah. Most, I mean, I, I can't think of anyone off the top of my head. I can't think of anyone I know who watches it when it airs. Everyone that I know time shifts it, generally by about 15 minutes. But yeah, I That's mean, right. we're, we're so, so 
busy nowadays. We we don't. I mean, we don't slow down. I mean, that's another topic for another discussion. But yeah, Malice was was a great episode. Uh, definitely among my favorites for for this season. Not uh, not my absolute favorite. Uh, visually, it is easily one of the most stunning episodes of Stargate ever put to film. I must say, this is my favorite episode for the score. Joel Goldsmith did a uh, fantastic yeah. job in this episode. You know, he's he's kind of been relegated to adding music uh, that is really, really mo- uh, designed to make you uh, not recognize, per se, that you're listening to it. It's adding to the mood. And I, 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 I'm a little disappointed about that because, you know, in, in, in SG-1 in Atlantis, you know, he was just really allowed to sing a lot of times. But in this, ep- in, in, in this show, he's, he's, he's not in the... As I don't want to use in the way, but I mean he's not. How do I want to put? He's this? not one. I would I would say he's not as much a key voice in the the story well, or I, the scene. He's more wallpaper. It's more wallpaper music. Yeah, I, I which, think I think that he's he's still very much there, but at the same time, you know, I th- I think he's more providing for for um, the the ambience of what is going on yes, in exactly. this show. Wallpaper. And, but the the music, uh, I love the, the Simeon uh, going through the corridors and putting on, uh, getting the ammo and then walking into the gate room. All of that music was just fantastic. I mean, my my, I, I was so into it. And then at the end, especially, you know, where they they bring in the woodwind, just spot on, fantastic music. Definitely his uh, his best uh, episode yet, individual episode in universe. And I, I hope to hear more. And in fact, I would say this second season happily. He, it seems like he's been let off the leash more. Um, yes, I, f- I feel that much more so, and I think that that I think that's critical, quite frankly, to the success of the series. He is a critical contributor to the storytelling. I'm looking forward to the album coming out of the soundtrack. I listen to his albums all the time. In fact, happy belated birthday, Joel Gold. Yes, Joel had a birthday um, on uh, Friday, <laughs> I believe. Yes, he did. So yes, happy did. birthday to so, him. But just, David, so you know, I mean, Star Trek, all of the Star Treks have always been what they refer to as wallpaper music. Okay. It's okay. always been the technique that you heard for the first year, maybe the first few episodes of the second season of SGU. Stargate Atlantis, SG-1, definitely it was more integral. It was more a part of it. There were beats. There were hits. There was excitement. There was those quiet moments. And, I mean, I, I'm thrilled to see that they're letting joel come out to play yeah i really yeah. am and i hope we get a lot more of it i i love uh, going back and listening to uh, my cd for best of both worlds for for next gen where it felt like a, a movie score that that two hour that two hour episode was just mind-blowing i mean 90s that was at the beginning of the 90s when that that came out was just amazing and i still it sounds a little dated the the orchestra but i mean i still love hearing it and you know that sounds a lot more like sg1 in atlantis to me whereas you know this universe has a very different tone their their objectives are a little different and that's fine he just aced it in this episode he really did mm-hmm. oh yes it's time for quibbles. Okay, so I guess my quibble with this episode would be there is that phenomenal line of Simeon's on the walkie-talkie to Rush about wanting him to basically be alive and see those people die. I love that line. But we didn't no, talk about it in the main been, body of the episode. Yeah, there, there, there could have been set up earlier, a few episodes back. Simeon was not used as much as I would like to have seen I agree. Him be used. 
Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think uh, a, an episode or two earlier, they I wish that they would have given a beat where Rush and uh, and Simeon were allowed to come to blows or where something happened. You know, there was an interesting incident with Park, and I think it was Park in the in the mess hall. I, I wish that that would have been Rush now because uh, that would have established some animosity between them. But you're right. There's there's no specific anything set up between them until this episode. Yeah, so we don't get any. I mean, the the pay, there's not as much emotional payoff to that beat as there could have been if there was more setup yeah. for it. Uh, but, you know, we don't know actors' availability, budgets, or any of that, and I understand that. I just That could have been a deleted scene, been, for all we know. Yeah, it could have been a bigger, but this could have been an even bigger moment. I mean, it almost yeah. had that Wrath of Khan. You know, uh, <laughs> I was going to say, Diana, this sounds so cliche, but when he was talking over the over the uh, the walkie-talkie, I could have swore it was Khan talking to Kirk. I mean, yep. the quality of, of that dialogue was so good. And, you know, I was just eating it up. And that's why I wanted more interaction between the two of them you know, and why I was a little disappointed. Exactly. Don't go! Don't kill him! We want more of this! This is good! So, <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. So that's my quibble. Um, my quibble. Are we to assume Destiny has backtracked now? I assume it, they didn't kick it into reverse. I assume she turned around and flew the other way. Are we now to assume that Destiny has turned around again and is continuing to head outward into the universe? Or is she now traveling back along her old path? It's a very good question that um, I don't know if it's a quibble. I think it's more of a question. It's a we question. Don't, we don't stick around long enough to find out. Yeah. You know, we're just, I mean, the first scene of the entire episode is where our secondary characters, our scientists are, are digesting all of this information yeah. and they're starting to slowly come on board. Has everybody signed on? We haven't seen that yet. We don't know. And, and wouldn't that affect whether the ship had turned back around and continued mm-hmm. in one direction or another? We don't know. Will we find out next week? It, if you've seen the preview, if you've seen the preview, that, that may actually be a clue. I'm not entirely sure. Considering the speed of certain ships, that's all I'll say. Any other quibbles? Yeah, but it's a, it's, a, it's a series quibble at this point. If they're all stuck on this ship and it was built by ancients, why aren't they all going back to school and learning how to read ancients so that they can move out throughout the ship and start to operate different things? I would sure hope that that's something that they were they are doing. I I assume that you know I mean Scott is definitely learning some, especially in the shuttle. The, all the shuttle had the tags in in English of what things meant. So you know I think that that's I think we can assume that that's happening. I may be wrong, but I I think that that some of that is happening at least for some of them. You know I mean you're looking at that countdown clock, which is an ancient. You know you're gonna want to you're gonna want to learn how to read it. You know, I haven't taken the time. I know a lot of people know how to read it. Oh, it's 55 minutes. I'm like, oh, I need to sit down because those characters are available online. You can read you can you can learn to read that clock. And I think really what this boils down to and you and Darren talked about this last week was that the conceits that were done in SG-1 and Stargate Atlantis, like everybody in the the galaxy speaks English and things like that. Stargate Universe has gone out of its way to demonstrate that they're not going to do conceits. That's right. They're not going to do them. So they need to stay consistent, and I'm hopeful that they will be strict with themselves, disciplined with themselves about that, and not 
start having conceits like that. Well, that's why I, mean, I brought up in the in the uh, the episode for the greater good. You know, when when Young pushes all those buttons and he accidentally fires the engines, I'm convinced that he did that. But because you know, you can't. He hits a lot of buttons there, and you can't you can't make me believe in a show as real as this. You can't make me believe that you know he hit the exact buttons on a completely alien console. You know, there was no one else on that ship to to use another panel to activate the the engines, and they shut off again. So, you know, I think that that's exactly what's happening. I think that I think that they're learning how to use the ship. Cool. You have to. You yeah, have I mean. to survive. Yeah, so, and exactly. that ship is crucial to your survival. You would want to learn how to use it. Exactly, because Eli knows how to read ancient. Obviously, Chloe seems to be able to read some ancient now. Eli has to have been learning ancient, as have the three other scientists, in order to be able to start going through the database. The military needs to know. Camille needs to know, especially if they're worried about developing a larger hydroponics bay, using that big domed area, moving out and really taking advantage of the ship. They're going to have to be able to read the signs. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Exactly. Listener Mail. We have one voicemail. I know a number of uh, you wrote in, but uh, at this point, uh, I have had a chance to to go through one of them. And frankly, we're out of time anyway, so Darren and I will pick a lot of these up next week. I apologize for that. Hey, guys. This is Colonel T from Montreal, Canada. And I have a, a, a question, a, sort of a topic that's not really related to this episode of SGU, but more of, a, more of sci-fi in general. My question is this. How much does one episode of a sci-fi show cost? You know, for how much how much would an episode of SGU cost to make, start from, to finish? How much would an episode of Caprica cost to make, start to finish? The reason I ask this is, is because I was thinking recently, what if someone had won the lottery and gets oodles of money, you know, gets $50 million, and they decide to go and you give that money to a show that's recently been canceled to make more episodes. Because the only thing about a cancellation about a show is that they have no more money to... to Well, they have no more money to make the show anymore, but they also have nowhere to air it. But what what is that even possible? You know, get all sorts of money from the lottery and then give it to a, a recently canceled show like Caprica. If I got $50 million... From the lottery, could I give it to the makers of Caprica to make more episodes? Just a, you know, an idea that's been bouncing around my head. Because, you know. Anyways, I'm not saying that I actually have any of this money. It's just a, just an idea. Anyways, love the show, guys. Keep it up, and can't wait for the next episode of Stargate. Colonel T wrote in, and this is great. Have we have a, a member of the industry uh, on with us today? This is perfect. Colonel T asks, um, "How much uh, is that even possible, Diana, to give money from like the lottery and give it to a canceled show like Caprica for those of us who really want to have, you know, our our television?" I, I, you know, a lot of people win the lottery, and you never you never hear of someone like Bill Gates giving Enterprise a season five. You know, I know that that was talked about for a while. Or some rich investor wanted to fund a fifth season of enterprise is that even possible well it's all about ownership rights you know who okay. owns it if, if you come in with the money then technically you own it and the studio is not going to want to give you their franchise and I even if you sign over rights them. that says just take this money this is how badly that i want my show i, I yeah, sign no, away all I, my it, rights it, of ownership 
Yeah, no, I mean, in a court of law, it would be easy to break that. It would be very easy to break wow, that. So, okay. I mean, I can see the logic behind that. And as far as Bill Gates is concerned, he is, I mean, this kinetic that's come out for the Xbox, that's moving us closer to a virtual reality form of entertainment. So, in a way, he is contributing to the future of storytelling. But the whole, you know, the whole model, the business model is going to have to change. I mean, we know that, for instance, Sanctuary is shot for less than a Stargate Universe episode is shot. Uh, we know that Battlestar Galactica was co-funded from, by NBC Universal, which owns Sci-Fi Channel, and as well as Canadian funds, and uh, either was it Sky Channel, I think, yeah. was involved with it. So, I mean, there's different kinds of, of financial deals that are going on everywhere. One of the key things, though, that is a good thing for international listeners is that the amount of time between when an episode airs in the States and when it's airing overseas is being cut back considerably. I mean, if you look back just a few years ago, you didn't see things for like a year or two years after they aired here in the States. Eventually, it'll get to the point where it'll all air at the same time mm -hmm. internationally because it has to. Mm -hmm. That's the only way you're going to prevent BitTorrent and all the other illegal downloads. But it's, it, the whole industry is in such turmoil right now as far as how to make itself financially sound. It's, it's difficult, but they're not going to accept money from you because even if you claim there's no strings attached, their strings attached. Yeah, and they, even they if you don't feel it then that. and there. Right, yeah. exactly. And exactly. fans, you know, they're, they're finding other ways to contribute. I mean, look at New Voyages. I mean, if, you, if you're a Star Trek fan, you need to check some of these out. I had the, the privilege of uh, taking a look at some of the visual effects that are coming out in some of the next few episodes, and they are as good as anything on television right now. Check, check out New Voyages. You know, so fans are certainly, cer certainly having the opportunity uh, to contribute in, the, in their own ways, too. I just don't know if uh, a $50 million lottery is, uh, is one of them. No, but, but uh, I'll tell you, buying DVDs, I mean, one of the big arguments we keep hearing from MGM as to why they're not making the movies besides their own business problems is that the DVD market is soft. Yeah. Okay, fine. So go buy more SG-1 DVDs or SGA DVDs or Stargate Universe DVDs and prove them wrong. Yeah. You don't have to buy Stargate Universe. You can buy any of the three franchises. You can buy one of the movies or buy... Uh, you know, special features. I mean, the Children of the Gods special edition. That was a fantastic cut. I mean, I loved it. I was so happy. Yeah. I had bought it. At first, my impulse to buy it was purely to support the show because I wanted to demonstrate, yes, you need to keep coming out with stuff. You need to keep coming out with fresh things from If you build franchise. it, we will come. That's right. Exactly. But I bought it and I sat down and I was like, oh, this is great. Yeah. This is so cool. Look at yeah. that. I mean, the room, the cartouche room is like 10 times bigger. I know. Than like in Brad the said, every cut. penny went into the picture and that's just a oh, really yeah. solid Oh, yeah. And a sense of wonder. And then even ha it was fun to listen to Richard Dean Anderson's commentary, mm -hmm. you know, especially at the end where he's like, oh, I'd like to do more of these. And Brad Wright's like, what? <laughs> what? You told me this You should now? have told me this 10 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I mean, that's one of the ways that you can have your dollars speak. And, it does again, it does not have to be any particular series. I know there are fans listening and other people listening that are fond of one series and over another. It doesn't matter. Yep. Any of the series. Buy the books. Yes, that is a plug. Buy the books from Fandemonium. Buy the toys. <laughs> buy buy the, the sheets. Buy the T-shirts. Go to the cons. Any place where your dollar is supporting the franchise in one form or fashion or another, if it's licensed properly, and you'll know because you'll see the little MGM trademark somewhere, yeah. 
MGM is going to see that. And they're, they're, they're not idiots. They know it's a successful franchise. I mean, in, in their bankruptcy papers, they went on for pages and pages about how Stargate is such an important and successful franchise for them. They're not idiots. But the DVD market is soft. So make it not soft for those of you who <laughs> want to invest. All right, guys. This uh, week's question, Visitation, is going to be uh, airing uh, next, uh, next week on uh, Sci-Fi Channel. So that's our question for you. What did you think of Tuesday's uh, new episode of SGU, Visitation? I allowed myself to watch the preview for this one. This is, this is going to be interesting. Did you see this one? I did see the preview, and I'm excited. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I don't I, – yeah, oh, that's all we'll say. So that's on the <laughs> podcast schedule. That's going to be episode 110. Visitation, again, is uh, – that podcast is going to be November 29th. Uh, December 6th, 111, Resurgence. And then we're going to break for the, uh, the season in terms of SGU's airing episodes. We'll continue on though the podcast will for a little bit longer december 13th with uh, uh episode 112 sgu season two so far and diana we would love to have you back for that oh i'd be happy to come back absolutely as long as it's before i hit antarctica i i don't know i, I think that uh that darren and i are going to take a holiday break this year i'm not sure when that's going to be i know that uh i really want diane Turncheck back really soon because i think we have a lot of science of sgu stuff to talk about particularly now that we know destiny's mission i think that's an hour into itself well thanks again uh, for tuning in to everyone out there. Thanks to Russell for cutting and editing this show. One of these days, we've got to have Russell on the podcast. <laughs> he needs to hear himself every once in a while, I think. But uh, you can call in on the hotline uh, to have your own voice heard. Uh, it is a, a voicemail hotline. It'll go directly to us at 951-262-1647. Give us a call, day or night. It doesn't matter. Uh, your thoughts on uh, visitation, specifically for this coming week, or anything Stargate-related, sci-fi-related, if you want to talk to us, just call in, and we will uh, we will uh, uh, bring uh, your feedback uh, on air. It doesn't matter if you if you love the show or dislike the show. I mean, uh, as long as it's constructive, we want to hear from you, and your voice will be heard. So, um, or you can email a brief audio recording to webmaster at gateworld.net. Uh, MP3 preferred. You can email in a wave as well. Just record it from your little mic on uh, your computer. Listen to it. Play it back. Make sure it's what you want, and approximately a minute in length. Maybe a little bit longer, but not much. And you can also check out the uh, podcast feedback thread in GateWorld Forum. Diana, I know you perused that. And don't forget the uh, the life-saving show notes available uh, for your perusal at the uh, at the end of every episode. Uh, if you listen on uh, through iTunes and, and dock your uh, iPod into your car and listen, this won't be as uh, as useful for you until uh, after the show. But if you if you're one of those who uses the pop up feature, I like I often will listen with the show notes. And if I want more information about something, I'm usually the, the dispenser of that knowledge. But uh, Darren and I are. But um, you know, it's interesting to have that resource there because pertinent links to things that we talked about, as well as Omnipedia links and episode uh, guide links, as well as offsite uh, information as well. So that's about wrapping it up for this week. Diana, thank you again so much. It is a blessing to have you on this show. It is uh, To have you as a friend is, is just stellar. But to, to have my friend come on and participate with me is just uh, is, um, is a real, real treat. Well, thank you, David. And likewise, with extra helpings in there. I mean, it's... <laughs> it's uh, I think it was one of the, my highlights of this year was actually getting to meet you at the TimeGate Con. And I love doing these podcasts with you guys. You really bring a lot of thought to them and just raise the bar and raise the discussion so much on my very favorite franchise. So thank you. Well, we need your help raising it again soon. We're going to have you back. I will be there. 
from GateWorld. This is David. And this is Diana. We'll see you here next week for more discussion on the GateWorld podcast. 